Welcome to the Leadership Podcast series, Small Things Make a Big Difference, where I interview leaders all over the world and discover the lessons they have learned and apply on a regular basis that help themselves, their families, the organizations they work for, and the communities they serve in be a better place. My name is Spencer Holt. I'm married to my best friend, Brittany, have four amazing children, and I have a passion for leadership and learning. I've lived in Canada, the US, and England, and can use all three accents when needed. I love working in countries all over the world, helping teams, organizations, and individuals be better and happier by focusing on small things that make a big difference. I want you to think of a leader that during your time that you spent with them, you gave the most discretionary effort you ever have. You felt like you could climb any mountain And for some reason, they allowed you to utilize all of your capacity and you felt smarter than you ever had before. In opposite, I want you to think of a leader that for whatever reason, you actually gave less effort and you were more disengaged and you actually felt like you didn't know the answers. Today's episode, I'm so excited about spending time with Liz Wiseman, the author of Multipliers, where Liz shares that there are some leaders who use their intelligence to amplify the smarts and capabilities of the people around them. When they walk into a room, ideas flow and problems get solved. These leaders inspire people to stretch themselves and go well beyond. This episode is all about how do we help multiply the people around us, regardless of our role. Grab a pen, a paper, and take some notes for some amazing insights, and let's intentionally start to develop the small habits that will make a big difference in helping people be great. This week, I am so excited to welcome a really good friend of mine, but also someone that I have one of my most favorite books on leadership out there, Liz Wiseman, welcome to Small Things Make a Big Difference. Well, Spencer, thanks for having me. I love this idea that really small things can have a big impact. Well, and, and, and that's the essence. Actually, I, the essence of what it is, I think you capture in your book. And before we jump into the book, I'm going to do something that I normally don't do, but I think, you know, I'm feeling, I'm just feeling inspired today. So I'm actually going to give your bio, and then I want you to tell me something that people wouldn't know about yourself in your introduction. How does that sound? Okay, like something crazy or? Well, I'm, I'm gonna let you decide. I mean, this okay. is, you know, that's, that's, that's the beauty of okay. this. So, so Got it. You, were, you're, you were at Oracle for 17 years. You did a lot of cool things there as an executive. You are the founder and president of the Wiseman Group. Uh, you are the author of Multipliers. We're going to talk about that because I, if anyone asks me, you know, what's a great leadership book to, to read right now, I tell them, start with Multipliers. It will change your whole perspective. Um, and, then, and then recently, you were also voted as one of the top 50 thinkers in the business world, which I think is amazing. And I want to find out what you thought about that. Uh, and then you also wrote a book called Rookie Smarts. And so you've, you've done a lot of things and you travel all over the world. That, Liz Wiseman, is your introduction, but tell us now what we don't know. Well, I was 
I was voted class clown of my high school graduating class. Wow. <laughs> that, I really like you. That. You did not see that coming, did you, Spencer? I did. I was thinking, oh, she'll tell us how many kids she has or, you know, what her favorite, you know, song is. But class clown in high school. Yes, absolutely. And I like I've spent most of my life just trying to make people laugh. And I guess maybe that's why I study leadership and corporate life in the world of work because it's kind of funny. Like and bad leadership is funny. <laughs> I love that. Okay, we're going to take a little twist here. So Liz, in in your thought, I love this this thought about humor. So help me understand then your relationship or what you believe the relationship with humor and leadership is. Well, you know, this is actually something I gathered a little bit of data. Now, there are people who have done whole studies on this, on the effect of levity in the workplace, and it has all sorts of positive benefits. But for me, I'm doing the multipliers research and I'm kind of finalizing my survey. It's got like 66 behavioral traits that I'm assessing, you know, what's, you know, the multiplier orientation versus the diminisher orientation to these traits. And in the kind of at the last minute before I finalize it, I toss in has a sense of humor and I put it in there purely for idiosyncratic reasons. And, you know, like I think my mom has lived my whole adult life in fear that like I'm going to somehow like ruin the family name or the, you know, our faith or something by, you know, one of my wisecracks. And maybe I did it to just, you know, to just prove a point. But it turns out that sense of humor is the least correlated of those 67 items with diminishing leaders. Wow. Meaning that they're not funny. And I don't mean like, class clown, stand-up comic, cut up kind of funny. It's, they just lack the ability to laugh at themselves. And, and we find it's a, 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 a trait that's highly present with these multiplier leaders is they have a sense of humor about things. And think about how that like depressurizes tough situations when somebody can kind of laugh at a screw up, you know, just at life's foibles. I think they, it humanizes the workplace. That's or maybe that's just me like kind of trying to justify my CD past. <laughs> well, it definitely highlights how prestigious your high school award was. Oh, yeah, I thought you were gonna say how prestigious my high school was and it clearly wasn't. Like I think my <laughs> high school ranked, I think it was in the state of California. It was in like the top 10 drug abusing high schools back in the like 1970s. I graduated in the 80s, but trust me, it wasn't, you know, much cleaned up uh, at that point. No, no, no. This was not a prestigious high school. Uh, well, nevertheless, though, I, I love this correlation in this early kind of uh, segment around how important humor is. In fact, I, I've often thought as I've um, had a chance to kind of go all over the world and, and interact with different people, one of the things I think that is common is that people love to laugh and, you know, they might find humor a little bit different, but everyone, I think it's in themselves that they love to laugh. And so I think what's unique is in your findings, you're suggesting that some of our most effective leaders have that ability to not take themselves very serious and to recognize that, you know, that humor can go a long way in tough situations. 
Well, it can. And not only does it take the, the, the edge off a high pressure situation, you know, there's all sorts of data that shows what levity does to a learning environment is that we actually learn more when the environment is light. And so to me, humor is so important, not only in the, the management process in an organization, but in the learning process. You know, learning should be fun. Uh, that's uh, it's so true. In fact, you know, as, as I get to um, be part of this commercial learning organization, we often talk about the, the learner experience. And to your point, right, it, it has to be fun and it has to be engaging. Um, okay, Liz, before I could, we could spend an hour just on that, but I, I would, for those that maybe that are listening in, if they haven't read multipliers, what, give us a quick uh, scenario. Tell us a little bit about the book multipliers, what it is and, and why it's done so well in the marketplace. Mm. Well, the book is this exploration or this examination of why some leaders, I call them diminishers, seem to drain intelligence from their teams. You know, like these leaders are really smart themselves, but the way they use their own intelligence just sucks the intelligence out of a team. And, you know, we all know who these people are. They, you know, when they walk in a room, it's like the IQ of the room drops. People go quiet on them and they defer to them, you know, perhaps because they're intimidated by them or they just defer to them because they're like, who else needs to do any thinking? This one person has got it all figured out. So it's an exploration of these diminishing leaders and the cost, the havoc that they wreak on the organization and the cost. I, I found in the research that these leaders get less than half of people's intelligence. And, you know, when I started the research, I could see these diminishing kind of leaders and I could see that they got less from other people, but half was shocking to me. And of course, we pay people at their full rates, but these leaders only kind of yield half of their value. So that's part of the exploration. Then it looks at a very different kind of leader who is also smart and capable, but the way they use their intelligence has a very different effect on people. These people seem to, and I called it multipliers because they seem to amplify the intelligence of others. The way they use their intelligence sparks other people to have good ideas and insights. Like these leaders ask good questions and get other people thinking. And um, it's an exploration of these two types of, of leadership, why these multipliers get more and probably the maybe this is getting to your question of like, why is it really resonated is because we look at the, that most of the diminishing that's happening is, is accidental. And so the book really explores how can you end up like completely squelching innovation and energy and commitment and ownership on your team while doing the very things you think are going to, to spark those things. Uh, you know, it's so funny, Liz. One of the things I, I will do when I'm asked to speak, and if it's around a, a leadership topic, I will often ask people to think about that leader that, you know, they just can't wait to either get promoted or just to leave <laughs> because of what you've just said. They will suck the life or energy out of, out of a team. And, you know, inevitably, everyone will raise their hand and they can immediately visualize that one leader. And then to contrast that, we'll ask them, you know, think about that leader that, inspired you and if you asked them to run through a brick wall they would and 
and people can visualize that person as well. And, and I think what's so great about this book is it helps you really start to identify the different types of leaders. And you've articulated, you know, these multiplier behaviors and diminishing habits that sometimes we have. And so if you're sitting on this, you know, this podcast, listening to this, most people are going to be sitting there thinking, well, I'm, I'm a multiplier. How do we, how do we really actually know which one we are? Because you've just said, sometimes we do some things that aren't, it's more accidental than by choice. How do I know which one I am? You know, the way you know, it starts with self-awareness, but the way you really know is you ask the people who work for you. Now, let me give a little guidance here. If you go to your team and you say, am I a diminisher? Like, I can tell you the answer to that question. They're going to say, no, no, that's not you. Of course not. Or even if you ask your team, am I an accidental diminisher? Meaning like a a well-intended leader that's having a diminishing effect with the best of intentions. You know, the likely answer is no, no, not you. Liz, of course, not you. But this is a question that people will be able to answer is if you go to your team and you say, how might I with the best of intentions be causing other people to hold back or shut down? That's a question that will get a conversation going. Um, But it can start with a little bit of awareness and you might look at I've laid out nine accidental diminisher tendencies, like ways that with the best intentions, we end up having as big of a diminishing impact as these like tyrannical, like narcissistic kind of diminishers. And most people, when they're exposed to those, will say, oh, oh, that's me. Like, you might be a rescuer. You know, you just really care about your people and you don't want to see them struggle. So you jump in and you help. You know, we all know what happens when a leader helps too early or too often. Or maybe like me, you're kind of a, an idea guy, a fountain of ideas, and you love a creative environment. You toss out ideas. Hey, what about this? And have you thought about this? Hey, you know, maybe we should consider this. But your ideas come so fast and so often that people don't need to have any ideas of their own. They just spend their days chasing your ideas. Um, and... I could go on, but like understanding how our best intentions cause us to cause other people to hold back is the beginning of this learning process. Uh, It's so funny as you're, as you're listing them out. When I first read through this book and, and actually I remember going through uh, a a multipliers course actually with um, somebody in the middle East at one point when the idea guy came up and also the energizer bunny, I, I had to literally, you know, just kind of wrap my arms around myself and say, it's okay, you're going to get help for this. Uh, Because that was me. And it was so therapeutic, actually, to kind of, you know, have the discussion with others to say, it's so great to bring clarity to some of these behaviors, because if you're not made aware of them, you you can keep going them. I loved your question that you could ask with your team. And so if you're sitting there listening today, think about, you know, how you might approach some folks on your team, just to start to identify where you sit in the camp of, am I multiplying or there are, I mean, inevitably there are some things that they're doing that will take that away. What's the antidote to that then? What's, what's some of the multiplier behaviors that if you had to choose one or two is like, you know, do you have a favorite child in the multiplier habit camp or what, what are some that you really love to focus on? 
Oh, I'm so disappointed by your question, Spencer, because I thought you were going to ask if I had a favorite child and I was going to be like, finally, somebody gets it. I do. Uh, you know, I, let, let me offer a few of my favorite shifts. And I think of these as small shifts. It's one of the reasons I love this idea of the small things that make a big difference. My favorites are shifting out of the mode of telling and operating in the mode of asking. You know, we find the best leaders, they, they tell less and they ask more. They ask more questions, they ask better questions. And when they ask, it creates a, a vacuum that invites other people to step up and find answers. You know, if I had to put all of my energy on one multiplier skill, it would be the art of asking really good questions. And particularly, as we're currently leading in times of uncertainty, you know, when you are leading your team in the dark, <laughs> where you don't know what's going on, you don't know really where you're headed, you just need, you know, you need to move forward and make progress. Like a leader can't have all the answers. Their, their best contribution is a really interesting, focused, pointed question. So that's where I would put uh, a lot of my energy is and telling less and asking more. Perhaps uh, a cousin to that one would be playing fewer chips is instead of playing big. A lot of leaders think that they need to have a large presence and they do sporadically. I, I, I think we conflate two, two myths about leadership. One is that you need a large executive presence and two, you need to be consistent. And so what we get are we get these like loud, always on leaders who are like, whoa, you know what? They're, I'm excited about this. You should be excited about it. Woo, look what we get to do. And they're absolutely exhausting to the people around them. And people learn to tune them out. And uh, I would offer the chip challenge to play fewer chips. You know, the best leaders don't take up all the space. They create space for others. But when they play in that space, they play big. So it's like the best leaders know when it's time to play big, and they do. They play a chip, you know, a big idea, a big question, a big challenge. But then they also can go back and play small, remain silent, be an observer in the meeting, and create room for other people to be big. Or, you know, instead of giving help, do what I call give the pen back. You know, because when you help people who are struggling, your help in some ways pulls that ownership back from them. And we have to remember to hand responsibility back to people. Like good leaders give other people ownership, but really good leaders keep that ownership with other people. Mm -hmm. So it's like just a simple act of reminding people that they, not you, are still in charge. I'm sitting here listening. I'm, I'm nodding my head fiercely and I'm taking some notes because if you're listening, you've gotten really three very simple ways to increase your leadership effectiveness. And, and I loved how you kind of, you called out the favorite child, clearly ask great questions. Um, I like the cousin reference around the chip. And I, that one, I, 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 that one, I really struck a chord with me, Liz, because I think that one is, is hard it's sometimes really hard to do because I think in organizations today where we 
are in such a political environment, we're trying to come up with the next best idea. It's about not showcasing what you can do, but it's allowing other people to showcase how great they are and being secure that you don't have to be always on stage for it. Well, it is. And, you know, I was, I was listening to a video last night and it was, um, I'm going to get her name wrong because she's got the two last names and it's going to throw me off. Doris Kearns Goodwin, or is it Doris Goodwin Kearns? But the presidential um, historian and um, uh, bibliographer, she, uh, biographer, I mean, um, she said like one of the first acts of leadership is the act of self-control. And, you know, having studied all of um, these American presidents and, you know, she talked through like Lincoln would write these crazy angry notes at people, these letters, fierce, angry, mean, and then he wouldn't send them. And she went through president after president and what they did to contain their emotion. And, and it's really what we need is we need leaders who are mature enough that they can contain themselves and keep themselves small enough so that other people can contribute, but yet know how to come in big when it's their turn. And I guess that's the, the, the metaphor I see the best leaders do is like when it is their turn, when they're doing that thing that only they can do, set the agenda create the tone, ask a big question, frame a debate, um, challenge an assumption, like they come in huge. They have a huge presence, but then they recede and they create space for others. And it really takes the ability to manage one's emotions and keep one's ego in check. I was just going to say that emotional awareness is such a critical piece of the puzzle, what you're talking about there. And any tips, Liz, on how someone can increase that emotional awareness so they're able to do that, not just some of the time, but all the time? Well, I think it starts with understanding your impact on other people. You know, it's, it's, at, it's trying to understand are your intentions and your impact the same thing? Like, how? You know, how did what I, like, it's understanding how easily we can have our intentions misconstrued. And it's asking people to help us see, you know, you mentioned learning about multipliers in the Middle East. Let me try to quickly share an experience I had there. I went out there, I was teaching a group, it was an Emirati national company in the UAE, and it was the CEO and his management team, I don't know, maybe the 25 top executives. I introduced this idea of diminishers and multipliers and accidental diminishers. And I ask everyone to identify a way that they thought they might be accidentally diminishing and then to share it with their colleagues. You know, now I realize I'm doing this in a culture where this might be a little bit assertive of me to be asking for this kind of disclosure. And I realized I was probably violating a bunch of cultural norms when I, when I asked, so I asked them to do it. I kind of sat down to catch my breath and I noticed they're not doing it. You know, they had been at these tables, they're getting up, they're moving around. They're now talking sort of energetically about something. I, I realized that they've kind of blown off my exercise and they're working on some of their work. 
And so I asked one of them to explain to me what was going on. He goes, oh no, you, you asked us to share what we thought might be our accidental diminisher tendency, but instead we thought it would be better if we let our colleagues tell us. And so they had been rearranging themselves into their, their natural work groups. The finance team had gathered over here and they were getting that feedback. How, how do you create an environment around you where not only can you share what you see as your leadership vulnerability, but you can ask people for what they see that you can't see. And I don't know if there's a magic answer for doing it because it takes a lot of trust. But I guess if there's one small thing that makes a big difference there, it's leaders being able to point out how their own intentions, like their best intentions went wrong like how they got it wrong, the mistakes that they made usually creates a, a, a germ for that kind of environment to, to grow. Such a great story. And, and I'm, I hope that everyone, as you're kind of listening to this and you're thinking about your own teams right now, and I, you know, Liz, I actually think this probably transcends far beyond a team. You could, you know, you could use this as a parent with your kids or, you know, or with your social groups, but really understanding you know, are my intentions and the impact that I'm having the same things? To your point, you, you really only get that if, you're can, if you can collect data or feedback from that group and they trust you enough and that process that they're willing to share. And creating that environment seems paramount so that you can get that type of feedback and really start to make some of those changes that, that you really need and the insight that you get. That I just, I'm such a fan, Liz. Super good story. The great can thing we about add to can we add one little insight to that, Spencer? Like yes, doesn't that also become possible when leaders can laugh at themselves? Yeah, totally. and like my sense of humor, I, I wasn't like I don't think that implied like they tell great jokes. It's this ability to just laugh to take that edge of seriousness off things and. Boy, if as a leader, you could do one thing to create that environment where people can help you calibrate, it's just laugh at yourself more often. Because then it becomes fun to say, hey boss, you know what, I don't need a rescue. I'm not a damsel in distress here. I'm gonna get this thing done. I just want you to sympathize with what I'm going through, but like back off, I can do this myself. Like you can't really assert your capability that way around someone who can't take a joke. I couldn't agree more and th th that power of humor but to your point it's not it's not the ability to stand up and do stand-up comedy it's to your point it's the ability to laugh at yourself and I think when people can see you laugh at yourself it probably lets down a guard and and in particular feeling in the room that lets people feel at ease and that they're it's okay for them to be themselves yeah you know, I, I think a lot about what a leader needs to do so that people will tell them the truth. And I don't mean this from an ethical standpoint. I mean it from just like bad news. I, you know, I've heard um, former President Barack Obama talk about this. It's like what he had to do to get people to tell him not just what he wanted to hear, but what he needed to hear. And I think it's 
a struggle all leaders go through. And the, the more senior you are in the organization, the more you have to have very, very purposeful ways to create the safety for people to tell you the things you need to hear. Because senior executives don't get told what they need to hear. It's why they often look like kind of bumbling fools is because nobody wants to tell them like, no, that's a bad idea. Like people are afraid of you, Liz. People find you intimidating. You know, it's like they don't hear the truth. Exactly. And, and you've given some really great perspectives here. If you can imagine, one of the things I love about this podcast is it, it is it's bite-sized um, one of the things I hate about this podcast is that there's never enough time. And so, Liz, I'm going to ask you two more questions um, before I let you go, if that's okay. Actually, I'm going to ask you three. Um, the first one, I think, is super important. Liz, if you were to go outside and uh, go for a walk or go for a run or do a little workout, what song is your number one pick on your playlist right now? Oh, I don't have one. I'm like so non-musical. I listen to whatever else is being played in my house, but I'm kind of a Dean Lewis fan right now, but. Okay. Okay. I can, I'll take that. That's respectable. Um, second, second question. If you were to add a skill today, like as, as I look through the multipliers and, and you eloquently kind of described some of the things that our leaders can do uh, and some of the habits I can have. Is there a habit that has emerged over the last couple of years that you would add or that you think is so critical today that wasn't there maybe three, five, or seven years ago? I do. I think right now, this ability to lead people that span multiple organizations is critical. I, it's really an extension of multipliers because multipliers is very much about leading through influence. You know, where people don't follow you because you're the boss, people follow you because they choose to follow you. And I think right now we need leaders who can start and lead cross organizational movements. Liz, you've been incredibly generous with your time. The podcast is called Small Things Make a Big Difference. And my favorite question to ask before we end is, I'm interested, Liz, what is one small leadership habit that you've done throughout your, your life and your career that's made a big difference in the, the people that you've led, the lives that you've, uh, you've interacted with or improved, and, and the communities that you serve in? I, th I think... It sounds terrible, but I think it's honest, is I think I have had the ability to stand back and watch people fail. And um, there was a woman who was considering coming to work in my group, and she called up a friend of mine, Ben Putterman, who worked for me for 10 years at Oracle, knows me better than anyone knows me. And she said, Ben, what's it like to work for Liz? And he goes, Liz, we'll stand back and watch you fail. She tells me this. And I'm like, Ben said what about me? Like of all the things he could have said, that's the one he chose that I'll stand back and let people fail. And, you know, after I got over my initial hysteria that that was his description of me, I think it's right is that I, I ask people to do hard things and then I don't jump in and, and do it for them. And I think I've tried to give people that gift 
and not usurp it from them because that's how I was raised professionally and it's how people grow. And I've had moments where I've, where they've been hard. Um, I've had moments with my children where that's been hard, where I'm like, you know what? I can't intervene here. I just need to let them experience the consequences of their actions. And, but the same hold true, holds true on success. It's like, I then stand back and watch other people succeed and not usurp that as mine. Amazing insight, Liz. If you're listening today and you're like me, um, if you're driving and listening, please don't take notes, but you'll probably re-listen. And this, Liz, you filled with us with just some nuggets of different things that we can be aware of, that we can ask people and then intentionally really help um, myself included really re-look at, sharpen the saw a little bit and say, there's some things that I could do a little bit better. So thank you so much for joining us today. Spencer, thank you for having me. And I hope everyone listening, just keep laughing at yourself. It's the best way to lead. I hope you've enjoyed this week's session of Small Things Make a Big Difference. To close, I thought I would share with you the three things that I wrote down after listening to this interview. Number one, laugh at yourself. May we always use humor to engage and inspire the people that we lead. Let's be honest. Our jobs may be serious, but let's not take ourselves serious. Number two, ask really good questions. Today, leadership is not about having all the right answers. It's about asking the right questions. And number three, stand back and let people fail. This was such great insight and authenticity from Liz, especially if we have what we might call a little bit of a control issue. Let us allow our people to make mistakes and to learn and, and inspire them to be the very best. In the end, I would love to hear from each of you and hear from you what small thing did you take away from the interview with Liz that you will start to do that will make a big difference in the lives that you lead and interact with.